This morning I'd like to speak a little bit about let me make it a little softer. <laughs> a little bit about understanding how we do the practice and the purpose of the meditation so that you have a context for understanding the work that we'll be doing here during the next three months. Meditation is a path of practice. And it's a path which has to do with the purification of the mind, that is purifying the mind, those defilements of greed, of hatred, of anger, of fear, and of ignorance. It's a path of purification in that sense, And it's a path which also leads to deeper levels of insight and freedom. What's important to understand is that we're practicing a quality of awareness in the moment of mindfulness in the moment, which is also going someplace. There's a goal, there's a destination, there's an end to practice. And a real maturity in spiritual work has to do with understanding the balance of both of those aspects. Because very often we get attached to one side or the other. That is, we either get attached to the goal and we get very ambitious, kind of spiritual ambition or spiritual competitiveness. You might find yourself getting involved in competitive sitting during these three months. That's attachment to the goal. We also get attached as a kind of pendulum swing in reaction against that to thinking that all the practices is becoming aware and mindful in the moment without the sense of the development or the deepening of understanding. And when we get caught on that side, we lose a source of tremendous energy and inspiration. Sort of like climbing a mountain. And the balance that's needed to keep us, to keep us going, to keep us interested, to keep us energetic. What we have to do is both pay attention to where we're stepping. We have to be aware of each step that we're taking and be aware of the ground that's underneath our feet. And it's also helpful to have the vision or to keep the vision of the peak or the summit or the destination of the purpose of our practice, the purpose of our walking. And it's keeping both the vision, that is, that larger context of understanding of what it is that we're doing, with the very accurate and precise attention to where we, to where we are in the moment. That gives us the balance and it gives us the energy to really undertake this journey. You will see, and most of you probably already know, that the mind 
is this fantastically creative and complex, complexly conditioned energy system. What we want to do is to penetrate all the different levels and layers of this mind. Because mostly in our lives, we stay on the surface level. And there's a lot happening on the surface. The surface is very rich and it's very varied. It's like the surface of the ocean with a lot of different waves. And because the surface is so varied and so interesting, we tend to get stuck there or get attached to that level. The purpose of the meditation is to really dive into the depths of the ocean, to dive into the depths of the mind. And so the techniques of our practice, and it's a practice which comes very directly from the enlightenment of the Buddha. Vipassana practice is the fundamental meditation practice that the Buddha taught in coming to a deep understanding of the nature of the mind. We don't want to get trapped. We don't want to get caught on any of the surface manifestations. But to keep the energy building, to keep the momentum building, to keep going deeper and deeper. In this light, there are a few things I wanted to mention this morning which are not meditation, but which are often confused with meditative practice. And the clearer we are in the beginning about the differences between various disciplines of mind, the more effective and the more powerful the practice will be. One very fundamental distinction, which, if it settles in the mind now, will be of inestimable help to you, is to realize and understand that meditation is not thinking about things. The thinking level of mind, or the discursive level of mind, is very powerful and very prevalent. We spend a good part of our lives on the thought level, either consciously or not so consciously, not so mindfully. But meditation is not thinking about things. The kinds of insight that we want to open to or realize are all intuitive rather than discursive. That means that simply through the process of silent observation, silent awareness, new kinds of understanding emerge. And so the first Vipassana mantra, and there'll be a series of them during the instructions, even though Vipassana is not really a mantra meditation, there are a few which are helpful. The first one, which you can write in your mind, nothing is worth thinking about in terms of the practice, in terms of the meditation. It's not that nothing is worth thinking about in our lives, but for the purpose of what we're doing here, nothing is worth thinking about. Not our childhood, 
and not our relationships and not the great novel that you've always wanted to write and not the nature of your relationship. Nothing is worth thinking about. Which does not mean that these thoughts are not going to come. They are going to come many times with tremendous frequency. And it's not to get into a struggle with them. And it's not to fight with them. Rather, it's not to choose to follow them or get lost in them, thinking that that is serving the meditation. The quicker we can see that we're thinking and let go of thought, not fighting, not pushing it away, but with a strength and determination of mind not to get lost, not to get carried away, to see it, to let go, to come back. That will very much help to deepen the power of concentration, of the mindfulness, of the intuitive understanding that's possible to arise. Now, often in the beginning of the retreats, when this is said, people kind of mentally nod. I think that's right, perhaps. But as the retreat goes on, and as you're sitting struggling with boredom and impatience and restlessness and pain, and all the things that come up, come up mostly or most intensely often at the beginning of a retreat, these thoughts get very seductive. Because the hour goes fast when we sit and daydream. And before you know it, the bell rings. And, oh, I had a good sitting. <laughs> it may have been an enjoyable sitting. It may have gone very quickly. But it's not meditation. And so it's just to be aware of that. That the kind of wisdom and the kind of understanding that we're developing will come intuitively, will come spontaneously in the silent awareness and silent observation of this process. So nothing is worth thinking about. And again, this is... For the purpose of meditation, it doesn't mean that in our lives we should never think about things. But for the practice to remember that. Another thing that the meditation is not, it's not primarily dealing with the psychological content of the mind. It's not that kind of self-analysis. All kinds of different things are going to arise, different emotions, different understandings of the way we relate to other people, understandings about our past, our childhood, our parents. But again, we don't want to divert the mind to that particular area of investigation. It's valid, it's important, it's not meditation. If you have a clear sense of delineation, then you can use the time here for a very specific purpose. Again, it's not to create a conflict between these two areas or levels of mind. Because in our lives, the psychological level of understanding is important. And there are many techniques of investigation which serve the purpose of psychological understanding much better than Vipassana. 
And when we're investigating that area of our lives, we should use the tools which are appropriate to that investigation. And it provides a very helpful complement to what we learn in the practice here. So they're in no way opposed or in conflict. It's another area or it's another level. To the extent that you get enmeshed in that kind of analysis or that kind of content level understanding, it will be a hindrance to the development of the kinds of Vipassana insights that the practice is designed for. So again, it's trying, it's trying to set the context of understanding for what we're doing and how we're going to work both in the instructions and in the interviews. All of our personal stories are fascinating and interesting and important. And there's the second Vipassana mantra, if you can remember, not now. Just Whenever these kinds of interests begin to fascinate the mind, if you can just repeat the mantra a few times, not now, not now, in December, December 15th. You will see that the deeper you can go in the meditative understanding, the more balance and perspective you will have on the psychological, emotional levels of understanding. And the whole purpose of the retreat is to build up enough energy and enough momentum of awareness just to cut right through to the deepest levels of the mind. When you leave the retreat in a few months, you will have another whole task to do, which is then to integrate that understanding in all the other areas of one's life. Don't integrate too soon. We want to have something to integrate. And and that takes a real uh, clarity of purpose. Many different kinds of emotions are going to come up during the retreat. And as Sharon mentioned last night, perhaps they've already started to come up of interest, of desire, of fear, of anger, of sadness, of depression, of elation, of interest, of excitement, of boredom, of anxiety. It's all going to be there because what we're doing is observing, stepping back, settling back, and observing the whole range of the mind. And mind, in this sense, does not mean mind is intellect. It means mind as the field of consciousness in which everything arises. So in the Buddhist sense, mind and heart is one complex. Although we use the word mind to to indicate both. They're all going to come up. Every aspect will reveal itself. The question is how we're relating to the things that are coming up. Are we relating by thinking about them? Are we relating by analyzing them? Or are we relating by simply observing? The emphasis of the meditation is very much observation. Not thinking, not analyzing, not getting lost in the story, not getting lost in the content, but just to see the nature the nature of the mind, the nature of emotions, the nature of the physical energies. 
So please don't be disappointed when you come in for interviews and you're experiencing ecstatic happiness and we simply ask you if you are able to observe it or fear or anger or whatever. Because it's the observation, the careful and accurate observation of what's actually happening that is important. Okay, so, so the meditation is not thinking about things and it's not particularly investigation of the psychological content of our minds. There's something else that meditation is not, which is very important to understand today. And perhaps if you understand it, you will reconsider being here. And that is that Vipassana is definitely not a bliss trip. So if you came with the expectation that you're going to spend three months blissed out in some kind of wonderful cosmic state of mind, you're in the wrong place. It's not what the practice is about. It's not even particularly to feel good. You know, many times you're going to feel terrible. That's fine. That's all part of it. What we want to do is to open up to the entire range of what this mind and body is about. And sometimes we feel great and high and happy and inspired. And other times we are really tuning in to different aspects of dukkha or suffering. And it takes a lot of courage and it takes a lot of determination and a lot of resolve to be willing to see all of these different aspects. There are a lot of dark corners in the mind which we have not very often been willing to look at or explore. They're going to come up. Sometimes even the build-up of energy, which happens in the practice, this tremendous accumulation of energy or tapping into the energy that we are, very often it feels like a, a yoga stretch. Now, our whole being is being stretched out. and the pro- the, In the process of that stretching, sometimes it's uncomfortable or we get uneasy. That's all, again, part of what the practice is about. It's opening, it's stretching, it's deepening. And it's tremendously, tremendously exciting and interesting. So meditation is not thinking about things. It's not the psychological analysis. It's not feeling good. It's not a bliss trip. It is the uprooting and the purification of greed or attachment, of aversion or hatred or fear, and of ignorance, of not knowing, of being clouded. There are a few attitudes or ways of working which will be helpful to you if you can remember and let them settle into your way of practice. One of the greatest helps is to be patient. The development of patience. Somebody once asked Trungpa Rinpoche, whether there was anything in Buddhism which corresponded to the Christian notion of grace. And he, he thought for a moment and he said, yes, and that surprised people because you don't, 
you don't often hear of grace in Buddhism. He said, patience is grace. And it was a very profound remark. Because if we're patient, and patient in the sense not of endurance, but rather patience in the sense of perseverance and constancy, that allows for the intuitive wisdom or the intuitive insight to come. If we're willing to stay with all the ups and downs, the times we feel good, the times we feel bad, the times of high energy, the times of low energy, if we can simply be patient, knowing that those changes and those cycles are part of the practice, it keeps us going and it keeps our minds open, it keeps our minds soft, it keeps it receptive. And it's out of that patience and constancy that we begin to see things in a clearer way, in a deeper way. You will find that you go through many cycles. There are cycles in the day, times of the day when you feel very alive and awake, and times when you feel very dull and drowsy and sleepy. There'll be cycles of weeks. Maybe even cycles of months. Maybe the first month will be one whole cycle, and the second month another cycle. Be patient through all of those changes. The important, the important aspect to keeping the whole process going and deepening is constancy of awareness, constancy of mindfulness. So that no matter what it is that's happening, whatever state is arising in the mind, in the body, we're willing to be with it. We're willing to look at it, to observe it. That's a very strong commitment. And it will be tested many, many times. If we can bring the mind back to that initial understanding of paying attention both to what's right happen, what's happening right here and now, and also to the vision of the path, to the vision of the peak, to the vision of the top of the mountain, it infuses us with a sense of purpose and a sense of energy to keep us constant, to keep that commitment alive. Slowing down is also extremely helpful. Because one of the tools of the meditation is accuracy. Accuracy of perception. In order to be accurate, we have to pay careful attention. And that's very much aided and helped by slowing down all the movements that we make. The attention can get much more microscopic. And so in the walking meditation, in eating, as you're going from one place to another, Begin to, begin to settle back into a slower pace. There are two ways of doing that. One way is helpful, one way is not so helpful. The non-helpful way is slowing down by holding yourself back. It's as if your energy is moving forward fast and you're kind of reining yourself in. You're holding yourself back. That creates a lot of tension and a lot of frustration. Rather than that, rather than holding yourself back, see if it's possible to settle back. Settling back into the moment. In that settling back, there's a sense of grace, gracefulness. There's a sense of softness and ease. 
really has to do with the quality of mind that is taking interest in what's happening, taking interest in the smallest movement. Out of that interest will come a careful and accurate perception. This slowing down also has to be balanced in a certain way. And that has to do with the sensitivity to the fact that there are 130 people living in the building. So when you're washing dishes, or you're on the food line, or you're taking a shower, that's not the time to be creeping along. That's when you want to practice a little faster mindfulness. So be sensitive. Don't get rigid in it. But understand, for the most part, the value of moving slowly with a careful and precise noticing. Being perseverance, being patient, being constant, slowing down. Last night, a little bit was mentioned about the silence. Silence is one of the most powerful aspects of the retreat. And in some ways, if you were simply here for three months and did nothing else but keep silent, you would learn a lot. If we add to that silence the power of the actual practice, it becomes a tremendously potent, potential for for our growth and deepening. Respect and honor and enjoy the silence. It's very rare in our lives and in our society where so many people can come together intimately in silence. It's a tremendous blessing. And I think you will also come to appreciate what a relief it is not to have to talk to people, not to have to interact, not to have to be involved on the level of relationship for this period of time. It's a wonderful gift that you've given to yourselves. It's especially true for those of you who have come with friends or as couples. It's really a time of renunciation. Use the time to be alone. It's the time to go inward. It's not the time for interpersonal contact. And again, it's not to say that interpersonal relationships are not important, because obviously they are. And a good part of our life is spent trying to figure that one out. It's not meditation. It's not the meditation that we're doing here. This is time for going in, in solitude, in aloneness. Imagine yourself to be Milarepa, you know, walled up in a cave in the Himalayas. We can create for ourselves that space of solitude, that space of aloneness, even in the context of a group retreat. And it's done through the power of silence. It's not only verbal silence. It's not only not talking. You will find it a great temptation after some period of time, perhaps by tomorrow, perhaps by next week, to talk through the bulletin board. And the number of notes begins to increase geometric uh, progressions as the retreat goes on. Don't get into writing a lot of notes to one another. You might also notice even how many times you end up checking what's on the bulletin board. The mind gets hungry for different kinds of contact. Use the time to stay inward. Use the time to be with yourself. Because it's very precious and very valuable. 
it's a very rare situation in our lives. Being patient, being silent, being alone, slowing down. We'll be talking as the retreat goes on more and more about what right effort means. That is the key to the practice. It's the key to the deepening of understanding. You could think of it as a process of splitting the atom. Now, in order to split the atom, a tremendous amount of energy is required. And these you know, big particle accelerators that build up the strong energy and momentum. And through that power, through the power of the energy, the atom is split, which again releases another huge amount of energy. What we're doing is to split the concept of self, of I, of ego, to go beyond, to go beyond that, or to, to split it open to another whole level, another whole domain of understanding. To do that requires a lot of energy, requires tremendous power. And that power we all have, but it takes developing we have that potential. It's the potential of our minds. But in order to arouse it and develop it, we need a continual application of effort to be aware. One of the examples which is used very often in terms of, of building the energy is the example of you know, rubbing two sticks together to make fire. And I had heard this many, many times, and Upandita, this teacher that we sat with um, this, this summer, he used that example. And I listened, and I nodded, and thought I understood. But I learned something again, or in a new way, during this last sitting that we did. And that had to do not so much with the understanding that you had to keep rubbing you know, to get the heat, to get the spark which will make the fire, but the understanding of how quickly the sticks cool off when you stop rubbing them together. Because the tendency in practice is to build up a certain level of energy, a certain level of momentum, and then think, well, now we can coast a little bit you know, and, and enjoy it. But every time we stop that application of effort, it's like things cool off again. And they cool off quickly at the level of subtlety and refinement that we'll begin to be working on. And so what's really needed is that commitment to be continuous. To be willing to observe, to be aware, to be mindful in as continuous a way as possible. And there will be very much encouragement and reminding of this aspect of the practice because that's where the power is going to come from. So it's being patient, it's being persevering, it's being continuous, it's being silent, it's being alone. And from all of these attitudes, from all of these applications, this fantastic journey begins to unfold. The Dharma is like a gold mine 
that gets richer, the, the gold, or the, the vein of gold gets richer and richer the deeper we go. And there's this, this wonderful sense of joy and excitement as we begin to tap in to the gold, to the purity, to the understanding of ourselves, of our own, of our own nature. So everything that we do in the retreat will be a support and encouragement to explore in that way, to deepen in that way. Do you have any questions about anything I mentioned this morning? About the things that meditation aren't? Or the different ways of working? I'm glad you bring it up because the noting is. Um, I'd like to speak a little bit about the use of noting as a tool. Very often, people find themselves resistant to using the mental label because it seems extra. And there's the process going on and the awareness of the process. Why note it? Why make this mental note or this mental label? For the most part, as you develop the ability and the facility to use the noting, you will find that it's extremely helpful both in sustaining the awareness over longer and longer periods of time and also that the mental effort required to note actually creates more energy in the system. And so if you find yourself being resistant to it in the beginning, try not to be lazy about it. Because as you practice it, it will get... the process of noting will become easier and you will begin to see the benefit of it. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's definitely worth staying with and practicing. The noting is the thinking process. And so you're right in, in seeing that actually it's part of that process. But it's not a discursive. It doesn't have a discursive quality. It's not thinking about things. Rather, it's using just a single word to lead the mind or to guide the mind in the recognition of what's actually present. And so it is the thinking process in that sense. It's the skillful use of it. In addition to making the mind more attentive and alert to what's happening, you'll also find that if you're using the noting carefully, it like engages that level of mind in a way that serves the meditation. So there's less, there's less tendency to get lost in more discursive type of thinking. It's helpful to try to note the object of experience just as it's arising, you know, so that the two are happening simultaneously. It may happen with thinking, especially in the beginning, and even as the retreat goes on, that you're not aware of the thought until after it's over. And you may already be back on the breath by the time you're aware that you were thinking. Just to make a very soft...
coding with different objects as the instructions are expanded over the next week or so. Do you have any questions, any other questions about the direction or the purpose of the practice? Because it's helpful to have a clear understanding as much as possible of what it is that we're undertaking. Because then we can align our efforts with that purpose, with that end. saying that purpose is to purify the mind of those aspects which you know just seem to impede our living uh, fully and reasonably in the world. Um, now it seems, but it seems like I'm not clear how the practice. Does that? Does that? Because it seems like what we do actually is pay attention in the moment, and so I'm not sure, right. and I don't know that I've necessarily seen evidence in people who've done. It. <laughs> 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 I, no, I'm not saying that in a nasty, <laughs> way. Um, an observant way. Well, no, because that's one of the things that we all, you know, we all say, well, well, this isn't to make me any better, and don't expect me to be any nicer when I come out of here, but. Still, there is that intention, right. you know, that otherwise, why be here? Right. The level that we're practicing and working on in terms of this purification comes out of the mindfulness or awareness in each moment. So, for example, if there's a moment of experience, whether it's the breath or a sensation or a thought or a sound, if in that moment we're mindful without attachment to it, in that moment we're deconditioning greed because there's no clinging to that moment of experience. If there's no aversion, if we're not condemning it, you're sitting with a pain in the knee, can you be aware of that pain without aversion or without fear? We're purifying in that moment that tendency of the mind to condemn what's unpleasant. And so we're, we're freeing the mind from hatred or anger. In every moment that we're aware of what's happening rather than lost in what's happening, we're purifying the mind of delusion. And so the purification is taking place actually in every moment of mindfulness. As I said, the retreat is only half the business. Because then there is a, there is a significant practice of integrating that on, on different levels in our lives, of the interpersonal and psychological and that also is a long-term practice. So it's not to say that you know, people do intensive meditation and suddenly all their life's problems are solved, because that doesn't happen. But it provides a working basis then for looking at these other areas of our lives. The deeper the insight into the impermanence of things, and the deeper the insight into the insubstantiality, you see that that begins to carry over and we we begin to learn how to apply that to non-attachment and non-clinging in in the other areas of our lives. But it's it's a lifetime process. One of the things that develops in the practice is 
gradually, not, not necessarily all at once, but as a greater and greater sense of fearlessness. Because we have to deal with so many different kinds of energies, both physical pain and different, different kinds of intense emotions which come up. And the practice of awareness, the practice of mindfulness, is to be able to stay with it and be with it without fear. Even to be with fear without fear. And again, as we get more open in that way, it begins to, begins to have a carryover effect in our lives. Not that the problems go away, but that we can begin to work with them in a different way rather than be lost in them. Another aspect of that, which is an, um, is something we've all learned, because in some way it's the foundation of us all being here, is that more and more we take responsibility for our own minds. So rather than put the cause of our difficulty or our suffering on circumstances or other people, we begin to see that the question on the deepest levels of suffering and freedom have to do with our own understanding. That they don't have to do with other people or circumstances or our surroundings. And the meditation in in this next few months over and over again that scene. Any other questions or concerns? We want to be used this today and tomorrow really to as Sharon said, let people settle into being here and to kind of clear out any kinds of uncertainties or concerns that you may have as, as best we can. Yeah. My rough impression of Zen is that it sort of focuses on certain lightning events and uh, whereas Vipassana is more of a gra- gradual development or unfolding. Could you comment? Um... They're actually both the same. There is this, in Buddhism, uh, and in Zen in particular, there's, there's a, um, you know, a long-standing debate between the sudden school and the gradual school. Is enlightenment sudden or gradual? But it's a... <laughs> it's not really a... a point of controversy, enlightenment at any level, any level of insight, is always sudden in the sense of it's an intuitive opening in the moment. And it's always gradual up until that moment of sudden enlightenment. <laughs> so, you know, sudden enlightenment happens People may have been practicing in a monastery for 20 years, and then all of a sudden, sudden enlightenment. So there's a path. There's a path of unfolding, and it's the understanding that different levels of realization always happen intuitively. So in that sense, it's just a sudden... There's there's a nice phrase from, I think it's Huang Po, one of the great Zen masters, he talks of a silent, wordless understanding. And that's very much the quality of, of the mind as it opens to deeper levels of insight. But there are a sequence of, of insights. Yeah. Now, one of the beauties of the practice is that we're really engaging on or beginning to walk on a path 
that many beings have walked upon right, in the past. And it's very well mapped. It's very well understood. And it's also very inspiring to realize that it's the same path that the Buddha walked upon and all the great enlightened beings. It's this path of awareness, the path of sensitivity, really working with our minds, working with our consciousness in a very precise and accurate way. It's possible to develop, it's possible to come to deeper and deeper places of understanding and we're, we're doing the very same practice that people have done for thousands of years in this process of deepening. So we have a lot of support. It's the difference between going into the content of thought and being aware of thought as a phenomenon which arises and passes away. We're not so interested in what the thoughts are saying, even though that often they say very creative and interesting things. But for the purpose of the practice, it's more important to see how they simply appear and disappear. And so that's the difference. You will. <laughs> you are allowed to dwell on it for a moment or two. <laughs> no more. <laughs> that is a very good example of something that the mind, we become aware of, that's interesting and fascinating and important on a certain level. But it's not our area of practice. And to the extent that you dwell on you know, the, re, the re-experience of the dreams and, and, oh, that symbolizes this and that, it does not serve the practice. It's not to say that it's not important. So I, I, I hope that that's clear. Because the deepening of insight comes from the refinement of the perception of change. I don't know whether they're going to do it this year, but for the past few years, some friends of ours who are in the psychology department at Harvard have come out and done different kinds of psychological testing. In the first year, they did different kinds of Rorschach tests, The past few years, they've been doing something on a machine which is called the the cystoscope, or something like that. (laughs) And anyway, what it does is it measures the rate of perception, how quickly the mind perceives. And generally, as, as I understand it, Western psychologists have the idea that people have a more or less fixed rate. That different people may be different, but that within a, within a person, there's a certain general rate of perception. Of course, what they found by you know, measuring this at the beginning of the retreat, at the end of the retreat, that people have very, very significantly increased the rate of perception. Of course, anybody who's meditated would have known that. (laughs) But 
<laughs> it has now been confirmed. <laughs> and in some sense, that really... Um, in some sense, that's the thrust of the practice, to refine the rate of perception, because as our perception gets quicker, we begin to penetrate through the illusion of the solidity of things. And we begin to, to get a very personal insight into the momentariness of phenomena, rather than phenomena as being the solid mass, right? whether it's of the body or of the mind. Or of, um. And so again... To the extent that we get lost in thought, we are not refining that perception of how quickly things are coming and going. That's why it doesn't serve the purpose. It's helpful. It's very helpful. I had, I had meant to mention that in terms of the different ways that we communicate. It's not only verbally or through the notes. There's a lot of um, body language contact. Avoiding eye contact with other people, for the most part, it's not to be rigid about it, but... It's, it's very helpful. One of, the, one of the most common thought patterns in the mind for most people is the comparing mind. It's quite amazing how strongly that comes up. It's very much fed by you know, looking around and, and watching other people. If you can really keep your attention inward and not looking about, it will keep your mind a lot, uh, a lot more calm and still. And again, all of these, all of these suggestions and rules, you don't want to enter the retreat with a kind of prison mentality, which, which sometimes people get into. It should really be a freedom mentality. You know, all of these, all of these ways of staying free to look inside and to observe carefully—they're really meant as a support system for you. That's the danger. That's why I was trying to indicate that there's a balance. If we get too caught up in a goal orientation, it can, it can work to take us out of the moment. And our mind just gets fixated on a goal and it can create a lot of striving in, in a bad sense and a lot of ambition. None of that is helpful. On the other hand, if we as a reaction to that, as a reaction to seeing the difficulties of getting attached to the goal orientation, we swing to the other extreme and say that there is no goal right, and that there is no direction that we're going in. It really, uh, in some sense, trivializes what we're doing. And so there's a middle path where we can understand that there is a purpose to this, that actually there is a development of understanding, and there's a deepening of understanding, and that in order to do that, we have to stay very present. That's why I said 
that balance takes a maturity of mind so that we can hold both without getting caught on either extreme. Because I think you'll find that to the degree that you understand the context or the purpose of the practice, it will give you tremendous inspiration to keep going in times of difficulty. Okay, there's a difference between eliminating the causes of suffering and having aversion to it. Those are two different things. (laughs) One of the things that you will see very clearly is that having aversion to suffering simply creates more suffering. So it's not a very mm, pragmatic approach to it. Okay, I think that maybe we'll end for this morning. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.